Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa is the second largest city in the state and, with a population of almost 415,000 residents, it is the 47th most populous city in the United States. Tulsa was settled between 1828 and 1836 by the Lochapoca Band of the Creek Native American tribe, and most of Tulsa is still part of the territory of the Muscogee Nation. The city is situated on the Arkansas River between the Osage Hills and the foothills of the Ozark Mountains in northeast Oklahoma, a region of the state known as Green Country. Considered the cultural and arts center of Oklahoma, Tulsa houses two art museums, full-time professional opera and ballet companies, and one of the nation's largest concentrations of art deco architecture. Few people know that hiding below downtown Tulsa is an extensive network of secret tunnels. Construction of the tunnels began in 1929 by the owner of two skyscrapers, Waite Phillips, because he was scared to travel between his buildings due to crime and chaos that was moving across the country. In total, the tunnels connect eight buildings, three parking garages, a hotel, several cafes, and small businesses. But in 1982, Tulsa residents were shown that you cannot hide from crime. Sometimes the criminals will hunt you down. On January 21, 1982, Jane Sloan was pulling into her designated parking spot she heard what she said sounded like a metal snap. And immediately after she heard that noise, the woman who was getting into the car next to hers screamed and was saying, oh my God, oh no, what happened? Miss Sloan, of course, asked what was wrong. And the woman said, I've been shot. Miss Sloan immediately crouched down behind her car. And so she was now unable to see the woman in the other car because she did not run over to that woman. She was obviously protecting herself, didn't want a spotlight if somebody's out there shooting people. But Miss Sloan did hear the woman in distress and she was sobbing, help me, help me, please help me. So Miss Sloan ran to the apartment manager's door and pounded on it. And when she didn't immediately get an answer, because remember, it's 1030 at night, she actually ran to her own apartment so that she could call 911. So paramedics arrived on the scene almost immediately. And in the front seat of this car, they found an unconscious woman who was sprawled in the driver's seat. The door was open and her legs were hanging out of the car and she was bleeding profusely from the chest. So paramedics bundled her up, got her off to the hospital right away. And as investigators were collecting the evidence in the car, they found this small arrow. Mm -hmm. And one of them realized that it was actually a projectile that was used in a crossbow. Now, crossbows scare me. I've had no experience with them, but I know what they are. Yeah, I did find out, Kath, though, looking into crossbows in Oklahoma, is that they are actually heavily restricted and classified in the same category as a silenced rifle, which just tells you how deadly they are. Yeah, I was reading about them and... 
what did I read? I read that they have the accuracy of a rifle at 100 yards. Isn't so that that's, scary? That's terrifying. But you said it was small. Well, the projectile was. So I guess normal arrows are a little over two feet in length. And these projectiles, these bolts are usually like 14 to 16 inches. See, that to me sounds big going into a body. No, absolutely it but is. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> beside the point. Go ahead. Bigger than a bullet. Right. There you go. <laughs> exactly. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Please pardon my sickness today. The woman was taken to a Tulsa hospital where the doctors at the hospital determined that the arrow that had pierced the woman's body went in right above her right breast and that she had actually removed the arrow herself. The woman was in extremely critical condition. And so as a result, the detectives weren't able to speak with her. At the scene, detectives also could not determine from which direction the crossbow had been shot or even at what range. The crossbow victim was identified as 30-year-old Michelle Ray Powers, and she was on her way to work at 1030 that night when she was shot. Michelle's mother, Virginia McGill, arrived at the hospital and, of course, kept constant vigil at her daughter's bedside. Unfortunately, six days after being struck, Michelle died from her wounds without having regained consciousness. The deadly crossbow bolt that killed Michelle was identified by police as being one of only five such bolts made by a Tulsa sporting goods company. Detectives also learned that the bolt that struck Michelle was fitted with a razor-type hunting point, and Tulsa Police Chief Harry Stege said police were investigating the identities of the people who bought the bolt. What this hunting point does is it actually makes it so that when you remove it, you're just tearing yourself up. Oh, I'm sure. Tulsa Detective Fred Morrow interviewed one individual from the store, and this person became particularly interesting to the detective. This gentleman, Dave Ward, was believed to be on duty at the time the bolts were purchased, and they were recently purchased. Detective Morrow asked Ward to undergo hypnosis to enhance his memory of the purchaser. So you know what's interesting about this, Kathy, is this is actually the same year our episode two took place in Salt Lake City. Do you remember this? No. no. <laughs> Not one little bit, but go ahead. <laughs> this is where the woman was killed on the side of the road and oh, then yeah. her car was towed. Mm -hmm. And so some of the witnesses who were driving by I-80 right. went under hypnosis. Do you remember that? Yes, to try exactly. And details. Exactly. So it must have been kind of a thing then. No, and it totally was a thing in the 80s and it was accepted in the 80s with courts. So Ward described the man who purchased the bolts as being five foot seven to five foot eight, weighing about 135 pounds, with dark hair and a mustache and a goatee, wearing thick glasses and having a deformity in one eye. So, Kath, I read as they were trying to narrow down suspects, right? They find the bolts. The guy has the deformity in the eye. He had said he was a hunter as well. And in the state of Oklahoma, you are allowed to use a crossbow for hunting if you have one eye that is 100% non-functional. So that obviously you can't use a gun if right. you're hunting with a gun. Right. In the state of Oklahoma, only 220 permits were issued for crossbow hunting that year. 25 lived in Tulsa. So they're not able to narrow down the suspects they're potentially looking for in this case. So, Kath, within two weeks of Michelle being murdered, police announced that they were putting together a composite drawing of the man who may have bought the bolt from the sporting goods store. They had searched store records in an attempt to figure out who had purchased these bolts and believed that whoever this person was purchased five bolts from this store. 
However, in a typical statement, Detective said, oh, but he's not a suspect. So come on in and talk to us. You might have loaned this to somebody and we just want to know that other person's name. The other interesting thing about this, Kathy, is that they talk about this composite. There's newspapers from that time that were able to research. There was no image that I could ever find that they had actually released the composite. I agree. I I was looking for the same thing. Yeah. Right after this, there was an article that appeared in the newspaper Tulsa World by a journalist named Beth Macklin, and she kind of gave a background of Michelle Powers. It turned out that Michelle was actually a native of Anchorage, Alaska, and had moved with her family to Oklahoma in 1953, so 29 years prior to this happening. Michelle graduated from Charles Page High School and worked for a time at a newspaper in their advertising department. She left the job because she had an opportunity to learn respiratory therapy. And this meant a lot to her because she herself had had respiratory problems her entire life. She suffered from significant asthma attacks throughout her entire life. It started about when she was five years old. And there was something where her mom said there were times she had to just sit on her bed for up to 10 hours trying to get breaths into her lungs. Michelle's mother, Virginia McGill, said that Michelle began dating Robert Doss, who was a Tulsa police officer, and she met him because he worked a second job as a security guard at the hospital where Michelle worked as a respiratory therapist. On January 19th of 1978, Michelle gave birth to a son. About 10 months later, she actually filed a paternity suit alleging that Doss was the father of her son. The next month, Doss filed a countersuit requesting full custody. Doss alleged neglect by Michelle, and there were no records that I was able to find. I'm guessing they might have been sealed. We probably wouldn't have been able to access them. And frankly, they probably would have been archived at this point. So I'm not sure what the allegations were, but Doss was granted full custody of his child. I was also reading that by then he actually presented a better picture of a family man because he had married in the past year and the woman had four or five children of her own. So Doss was able to bring his son in and kind of just integrate him into this already existing family. And it's so funny because that you said four or five children, because that's what the newspaper, every (laughs) newspaper article I read about the woman he married kept saying four or five children. And in my head, I was like, like, who couldn't count? Well, do you always know how many kids you have? Barely. Yes. There you go. This was 82. Like, okay, now I get it. The kid could have been outside waiting for the (laughs) streetlights. to come on. I just don't know. (laughs) They hadn't yelled for him yet. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, (coughs) sorry. Now, Kath, Michelle was not initially granted visitation rights with her son. So I'm guessing whatever the abuse that was alleged was significant. I'm assuming so, too, especially in the early 80s. Yes, exactly. However, Michelle fought for visitation and was eventually granted it when her son was three years old. Michelle's twin sister, Rochelle, said that things were looking bright for Michelle when Michelle got visitation rights with her son. She had a new job, a new apartment, and a generally happy outlook. However, Michelle expressed fear for her life to her twin sister. She told Rochelle that she believed she was going to be killed. In fact, it was on the evening of Michelle's third visitation with her son that she was shot in the chest by the crossbow as she walked to her car. On March 23, 1982, two months after Michelle was killed, two men were charged with her murder. 25-year-old Jack Ensminger Jr., who went by Butch, as one would, right, exactly, was arrested at the downtown post office in Tulsa, where he worked. He was charged with first-degree murder. The second suspect was a co-worker of Ensminger at the post office, who also happened to be a former Tulsa police officer. He was 28-year-old Jimmy Dean Stoller, 
and he was also charged with first-degree murder. The information that was filed by the district attorney alleged that the two of them acted in concert in murdering Michelle with a crossbow. So, Kath, we just talked about Ensminger's nickname being Butch. Right. Jimmy Dean. What do you think his nickname was? J.D. Jim. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Which I just thought was funny. I think it's supposed to be the other way around. Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, so Ensminger gets arrested, but before Stoller can be arrested, he dips. Anyway, so he leaves and it turns out the authorities did not have a beat on him for at least two weeks. According to court records, Stoller knew he had become a focus of the investigation and learned that charges were about to be filed against him. So he left. I'm sorry, he what? Yeah, you heard me. No, he, I didn't. He left. He did not. <laughs> he dipped. <laughs> Tulsa District Attorney David Moss declined to specify which of the men was suspected of firing the fatal bolt. Of course, once it was discovered that Stoller fled, there was, a, <laughs> God. there was a public outcry about the district attorney's failure to arrest him sooner. But of course, the DA stood by the chronology of events, saying he had to wait to file charges until the police covered all their bases in the investigation. So two days after Ensminger's arrest, the district attorney filed a federal flight warrant against Jimmy Dean Stoller, alleging interstate flight to avoid prosecution. So, Kath, of course, it makes sense that Robert Doss, the father of Michelle's son, was also investigated for this crime. Right. As we said previously, he was a Tulsa police officer at the time. Jimmy Dean Stoller, who, as we know, was off the force and working for the post office, was actually his partner on the force. Now, I did not see and I looked. Why was Stoller no longer part of the Tulsa PD? Did you find it? No. If Uh, anybody can find it, let me know. We'll send you a shirt. Exactly. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) I was up late last night trying to find it. Yeah. But did you know they'd been partners on the force? Partners specifically? That's what I just said. Oh, no, I did not realize. See, I don't listen to you. (laughs) No, I didn't realize they were partners. I knew they were BFFs. Right. They were BFFs. They were roommates before Doss got married. Correct. But because otherwise that would be awkward. Sometimes I would like to visit my family and live with somebody else. So, hey, I get that. <laughs> live with your best friend. Right. <laughs> attend to the family when you must. There you go. <laughs> totally. So even though Doss was investigated, he was not charged with any crime. As a result of this investigation, though, Kath, Doss was actually fired from his job as a Tulsa police officer because he refused to cooperate in the investigation into Michelle's death. The other interesting thing, though, Kathy, is that that wasn't the entire reason behind Doss being fired. There is that police code of conduct that says thou shalt not potentially be involved in a felony. Right. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing. Right. And so according to the city attorney, that alone would have allowed Doss to be dismissed from the force. So two months after Michelle's murder, Ensminger was arraigned before Judge John Reif and pled not guilty. He was represented by an experienced criminal defense attorney named Larry Oliver. Judge Reif denied bail and scheduled a preliminary hearing for three weeks out to determine if there was sufficient evidence to support the charges. After taking testimony from six witnesses, Judge Reif determined there was sufficient evidence to try Ensminger for first-degree murder. On Monday, September 6, 1982, six months after being on the lam, Jimmy Dean Stoller surrendered to Tulsa investigators in Oklahoma City. So Stoller hired an attorney named Thomas Gann, who, by the way, happened also to represent Doss previously. 
Thomas Gann said investigators from the district attorney's office met Stoller's plane at the Oklahoma City airport, but Mr. Gann refused to say where Stoller was flying in from. Tulsa District Attorney David Moss said that the DA's office had not offered Stoller any deals to return to Tulsa. But it just so happened that jury selection in Ensminger's trial was supposed to start the following day. However, due to Stoller's return, jury selection was delayed a week. Nine women and three men were selected to serve as jurors for Ensminger's murder trial, in which the prosecution was seeking the death penalty if convicted. District Judge Clifford Hopper presided and told jurors they would be sequestered for the duration of the trial, which was expected to last two to three weeks. So trial began on Thursday, September 16, 1982, now almost eight months after Michelle Ray Powers was killed. On the first day of trial, pathologist Dr. Sandra Dimmitt testified that Michelle died six days after being struck by a crossbow bolt as a result of a deep chest wound that caused trauma to her heart, lungs, and major blood vessels. Now, Kath, acting on a hunch, Dr. Dimmitt had the bolt tested for the presence of curare compounds. And curare is a potentially lethal muscle relaxant. It is super highly regulated because what it does is it's as any sort of relaxant. If you take too much, it stops everything, including your heart, because your heart is a muscle. Right. These tests came back positive. So good hunch. Actually, incredible hunch. Yeah. Also testifying the first day of trial was Jane Sloan. Now, remember, she was the neighbor from the apartment complex who was present when Michelle was shot and was the one who then ran to get help. Ms. Sloan testified about the sequence of events that night and her horror as to what Michelle was going through. Now, questioned by Ensminger's attorney, Larry Oliver, Ms. Sloan said she did not see anyone else in or near the parking lot when Michelle was shot. On the second day of trial, prosecutors played two and a half hours of cassette and videotape recordings of police interviews with Ensminger from March 18th, almost two months after Michelle's murder and five days before he and Jimmy Dean Stoller were charged with first degree murder. In a tape recorded conversation with Tulsa police detective Fred Morrow, who was also now the chief investigator on the case, Ensminger told Morrow that he would not kill anybody for nothing. On the tapes, Jurors heard Ensminger say that same statement, not once, not twice, but 33 additional times. Now, during the recorded interviews that were played for the jury, Ensminger told Detective Morrow that Stoller wanted to kill Michelle Powers. He said Stoller told him that a guy he used to work with at the Tulsa Police Department, Robert Doss, had an ex-wife who tried to kill their son, and Stoller said he wanted to take care of that. According to Ensminger, Stoller said he did not think it was fair for her to try and kill her son, and so she should then get the same sort of punishment. Also during these recorded interviews, jurors heard how Ensminger went with Stoller to Michelle's apartment complex a few weeks before her death to scope it out. Detective Morrow asked Ensminger that why, despite all of Ensminger's denials, did Detective Morrow have the bad feeling that he probably did it? Ensminger replied that he guessed it was because Stoller said he did it and, quote, Stoller is a liar. I'm not going to shoot anybody except maybe him if I ever find him for getting me in this predicament, end quote. Ensminger's alibi that he gave police was that he was at a club the night of the murder attending a fashion show in which his date was modeling. In defense attorney Larry Oliver's cross-examination of Detective Morrow, he criticized the detective for not thoroughly interviewing persons who might have been at the club that night who could confirm his client's alibi. 
During the second week of trial, Oklahoma steelworker Jeff Bitsko testified that he met Jack Ensminger for the first time at a Tulsa club the night Michelle Ray Powers was shot. He testified that around 9 p.m., Ensminger told him he had to leave because Ensminger was going to meet a friend from his job at the post office and make some big money. Mr. Bitsko told the jury that he saw Ensminger the next night and Ensminger told him that he fired the crossbow bolt that killed Michelle. Bitsko testified, out of the clear blue sky, Ensminger said, I killed that girl. And then he replied, what girl? And Ensminger answered, that crossbow girl. Under cross-examination, defense attorney Larry Oliver pointed out that Mr. Bitsko's testimony had Ensminger speaking of Michelle's death five days before she actually died. So the prosecution intended to make Jimmy Dean Stoller their star witness. So the next morning, the prosecution's final witness, Jimmy Dean Stoller, took the stand to tell his side of the story. According to an article in Tulsa World newspaper by Julie Delcor, Jurors learned that Stoller studied theology at Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma and was a former Tulsa policeman. However, at the time of Michelle's death, he was working for the U.S. Postal Service. The jury also learned that Stoller was a former roommate of Robert Doss, the father of Michelle Powers' now four-year-old son. And Stoller testified, Kath, that he felt like killing Michelle from the first time he met her in 1976, six years prior to the murder. But late last year, in 1981, he said the feeling of wanting to kill her intensified. He said he mentioned killing her to Doss, but Doss said he did not want to have anything to do with it. Stoller told the jury that he reached the decision to kill Michelle when he saw her abuse her son. He said she was also causing problems for Doss and his wife. Stoller said Michelle had them in court for a custody fight over her son. And according to Stoller, Doss told him it was costing him $100 a day in attorney's fees. And Stoller said he knew Doss did not have that kind of money. Stoller testified that he skipped town out of fear of arrest and returned and surrendered to authorities because he just couldn't run anymore. He said that during his six months on the run, he hid in Texas and Mexico. Then Stoller told District Attorney Moss that he knew that it was wrong to kill her before he did it, but it had gotten to a point that he had talked and talked and he didn't think he could turn around. He said he was sorry it happened and said, I know that sounds kind of petty at this time. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. In describing the steps Stoller took to kill Michelle Powers, he told the jury that he initially planned to kill Michelle himself and even went so far as to go along with his friend, who also is a former police officer, K.R. Terry. Does it seem like there are a lot of ex-police officers in Tulsa at this the time? The police was lousy with him. And, Absolutely. And I couldn't figure out why, but it was. So the two of them, K.R. Terry and Stoller, go to Michelle's apartment with an untraceable revolver. The plan was that Stoller was going to pretend like he was jogging. He was going to run up and shoot Michelle and run off. But Michelle got into her car and drove away too quickly, so he missed his chance. Stoller testified that after that, he told Terry he did not think he could pull the trigger and he was scared to death. It was at that point Stoller said he began thinking about using a crossbow because it would be silent and quick. So he tells the jury that he discussed killing Michelle with one of his co-workers, Butch Ensminger. Stoller knew that Ensminger wanted to buy a commemorative rifle, but did not have the cash to do so. So Stoller says, I know a way you can make some money. And Ensminger says, what do I have to do? Kill somebody? And the answer essentially was yes. Stoller testified the two men went to Michelle's apartment a couple days before she was shot. The plan was for Ensminger to run up behind Michelle, cover her mouth with his hand, and stab her to death. But Michelle's landlady saw them together sitting in a truck as she was out walking her dogs and she spooked them. So they leave. Stoller then tells the jury that on January 20th, the day before Michelle was murdered, he arranged to buy a crossbow from the man who worked at the sporting goods store, David Ward, whom we mentioned earlier. This was the guy that was later hypnotized. So Stoller said that he and his wife and Ensminger drive to Ward's house to pick up the crossbow. While they're there, Stoller said Ward asked him if he wanted some insurance that whatever he shot would die. So Stoller testifies that Ward then showed him a bottle of white powder and a little pod that could be attached to the crossbow bolt, so the tip of the arrow. Stoller said that Ward told him this white powder would cause all the muscles in the body to relax, including the heart, and would cause death in 10 seconds. Stoller then testified that on January 21st, the day of the murder, he and his wife went out to dinner and arrived home at about 11 p.m. Ensminger then called him and said, it's over. It's finished. Ensminger then gives the crossbow to Stoller and Stoller throws it off the Keystone Dam. With that testimony, the prosecution rested its case. The next day, the defense called their first witnesses. 
Daryl Floyd, a co-worker of Ensminger and Stoller at the U.S. Postal Service, testified that Ensminger told him that he and Stoller staked out Michelle's apartment and that Stoller asked him to kill her. Floyd said Ensminger told him that his response to Stoller was, nope, there's no way that he could kill anyone. Floyd told the jury that Stoller would often talk about him killing people and how easy it would be to get away with it. He also said Stoller mentioned that Michelle Powers should be killed because of the way she was treating her baby and how cruel it was. Now, according to Floyd, after the killing, Stoller asked Floyd to help him establish an alibi regarding the crossbow. He was trying to get Floyd to tell police that Stoller sold him the crossbow and then Floyd's wife would accidentally back over it. So Floyd had to throw it away. It was at this point, Kath, that Floyd got scared and contacted the police because, of course, he didn't want to be caught up in any of this. But because of his call, he helped them focus on Stoller as a suspect in Michelle's murder. Tulsa police officer Richard Lee Green testified that he was at Floyd's home talking to him about this case when Stoller dropped by. So Green and another police officer who was with them hid in Floyd's bathroom and overheard the conversation. Green told the jury that he heard Stoller admit his part in the murder and implicate another person. Officer Green quoted Stoller as saying to Floyd, you need to stick to the story. You're the only one who can link me if you talk. I hope you don't. Officer Green also testified that Stoller told Floyd, they are getting a warrant and I don't want to be picked up tonight. I just need one more day of freedom. I'm not going to run yet. And he didn't. He ran three days later. During the defense case, attorney Oliver brought two women to the stand who testified as to Ensminger's whereabouts the night of the murder. Beth Reed, a friend of his, said that she invited him to a fashion show that night. She testified that Ensminger was at the club at 10 p.m., the last time she had looked at her watch, and was also there when she left around 1 a.m. Another woman who was at the show testified that she saw a man, whom she later identified in a photograph as Ensminger, sitting on a bar stool next to Ms. Reed between 10.30 and 11 p.m. This is significant because Michelle Powers was shot between 10.30 and 10.45. The defense also called character witnesses for Ensminger, including the mayor of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, who was a childhood friend, a supervisor at the post office where he worked, and a family friend who was an assistant baseball coach at a Christian university, as well as Ensminger's pastor. After bringing 29 witnesses to testify on behalf of the defendant, Jack Ensminger Jr., the defense rested on the 11th day of trial. Ensminger did not testify on his own behalf. The next day, the case went to the jury. After five days of jury selection and eight days of testimony from 53 witnesses, it only took jurors four hours of deliberations to reach their verdict. Not guilty. Ensminger, of course, embraced his lawyers and the three of them cried openly in court in front of 150 spectators. His family and friends also cried. It was reported by journalist Julie Delcor with the Tulsa World, by the way, who was an awesome journalist on this. Yes. That the district attorney, David Moss, and his assistant, Susan Morgan, sat in stunned silence as the verdict was read. Following the verdict, District Attorney Moss said, quote, You win some, you lose some. We did as the circumstances dictated. We played every card we had. I would hope I can accept this loss as graciously as if we had won. 
end quote. I like the qualifier. Yeah, which is basically the way of saying, like, I'm super pissed right now. Right. One <laughs> like, would hope I was a bigger person, yeah, I, but I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, Kath, one of the things I read in the newspaper was that Ensminger was a fairly credible witness. And one of the ways the defense played it was that he didn't come forward with what he knew because there were so many former police officers involved in the story. He didn't know who had connections to the current set of investigators. One of Ensminger's attorneys, Clancy Smith, said one of the jurors told her she felt there was lying on both sides. However, too many people said they saw Ensminger at the bar at the time of the murder for her not to believe he was there. So remember, Stoller was charged with murder in March of 1982, two months after Michelle was murdered. But then because he left, nothing ever happened with it. Right. And actually, when he came back, he was also then in the middle of somebody else's murder trial. Exactly. So there was gossip that D.A. Moss was going to allow Stoller to plead to a lesser charge. Now, interestingly, Kath, it was also reported that D.A. Moss was not opposed to allowing Stoller to serve his sentence out of state because of concerns for his safety in an Oklahoma penitentiary. He had two things against him former cop and a snitch. Yes, definitely. So even though murder charges were pending, the talk was that he would get maybe a solicitation conviction. Right. And Stoller's attorney was trying to get him moved to a prison in Indiana because that's where his family lived. Ten months after Michelle Powers was killed, so we're now in November of 1982, Michelle's mother, Virginia McGill, submitted a formal request for a grand jury investigation into her daughter's death. Kath, Mrs. McGill, clank, clank. She did this because she was very unhappy with how District Attorney Moss had handled her daughter's case to that point. After Ensminger's trial, and of course, now there's gossip that made it to the newspapers that Stoller was probably looking at a pretty cushy plea deal. And this upset Michelle's family. So Mrs. McGill submitted a petition to the Tulsa County presiding judge signed by 970 registered voters who lived in Tulsa County. That is an incredible number, especially in a time when none of this was done online. Exactly. But honestly, how many times do moms step forward and make things happen? All the time. Like, what was that one guy? Was it South Carolina, the basketball player? That was Memphis, Tennessee. And it was Ms. Mary and his mama. Exactly. She was awesome. Right. And then there was the other one. Um, <laughs> anyway, you get my point. <laughs> But no, that's exactly it. Time and time again, you see moms are a force to be reckoned with, especially if their child is involved. So this is kind of happening backwards, right? Normally there's a grand jury and then charges are brought. Charges have already been brought. There's been a not guilty. There's rumors of a chintzy plea deal. And so this lady is like, no, not going to happen on my watch. I want justice for my daughter. Exactly. Immediately after filing the petition, Mrs. McGill spoke to the press and said that if District Attorney Moss could not do his job, they wanted a special prosecutor appointed who actually could carry out justice. Boom, mama. No kidding. Yeah. In response, District Attorney Moss said that the investigation into Michelle Power's death was pretty much at a dead end. And unless new significant evidence was uncovered, no further charges were anticipated. Now, Kathy, just six days after she submitted this petition and it was sent for verification of signatures, it was announced that election board officials had already verified that 728 of the 970 signatures were registered voters. They did this without computers. They had to use those little cards like you signed at the bank. Exactly. With their signature on it, which is amazing. So it was announced that a grand jury would be impaneled on January 18th, 1983. This is just three days shy of the one-year anniversary of Michelle's murder. 
The other thing is, because of the grand jury being convened in January, Jimmy Dean Stoller's trial for first-degree murder, which had been also scheduled for January, was pushed off so that they could await the grand jury's findings. So the grand jury actually was convened in February, not January, and the district attorney was not overseeing the investigation. Everyone had lost confidence, essentially. And so the DA said, well, I'll let the state's attorney general oversee things. Well, and there was also a concern that he would be called as a witness. That's true. So February 17th, 1983, a grand jury of eight women and four men was impaneled. Almost two months later, in mid-April, They concluded their investigation and handed down two indictments in the crossbow murder of Michelle Powers. Named in the two-count indictment were two former police officers, Robert Doss, the father of Michelle's son, and Jimmy Dean Stoller. Doss was charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Now, Stoller was already in custody because he had been previously charged with murder one. So what happens, Calf, is that it was the district attorney who charged Stoller with murder one. Now the attorney general opens a separate case and charges him with conspiracy to commit murder. And it was separate because it was the attorney general's office overseeing the grand jury, correct? Correct. Okay. So now there's two active criminal cases against Stoller. So now the gamesmanship begins, but really it's actually good lawyering. Stoller's attorney, Thomas Gann, allowed him to plead no contest to conspiracy to commit murder, which was the latest charge filed. The judge finds him guilty and they sentence him to 10 years, which was the maximum allowed. Thomas Gann, the attorney, then turns around and tells the judge, hey, you can't try him for first degree murder, which was the original filing, because we would be violating the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution's double jeopardy clause, which does not allow a defendant to be tried twice for the same crime. The judge says, no, 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 that's wrong. We're going forward with the murder one case. Attorney Gann takes it up on appeal. The appellate court basically said, yeah, you're right. Double jeopardy protects against a second prosecution for the same offense. However, murder and conspiracy are not the same offense. They have different elements that the prosecution has to prove. So the murder count stands. So going back to the grand jury, they issued a nine page report criticizing the district attorney for failing to charge Stoller sooner. Basically, he was charged two months after Michelle's murder. However, the grand jury noted the Tulsa Police Department urged the district attorney to take action much sooner. But because the DA delayed, Stoller was able to flee. I believe the exact wording in the grand jury transcript (laughs) was Stoller was able to dip. That's right. I'm 90 percent sure that's what they said. Interestingly, Kath, when we had read that Jack Ensminger was acquitted, we were surprised. Right. In this nine-page report, the grand jury said that based on the evidence they received, they believed that Ensminger's acquittal was appropriate. I bet that gave Michelle's family some measure of, I don't know, relief. Yes. Like, okay, justice was not... Thwarted. Yeah. I I agree. Everything we read, it seems so stacked. Oh, it had to have been him. It had to have been him. But obviously, the grand jury hears and sees things that none of us are privy to. Right. And so I just thought that was interesting. They had supported that. Based on Robert Doss's testimony, the grand jury indicted him on conspiracy charges because he told them he drew a map of Michelle's apartment complex for Stoller shortly before her murder. The murder allegations against Doss alleged that by aiding Stoller in committing the murder by giving him this map, he knowingly, intentionally and feloniously caused the death of Michelle Powers. 
Robert Doss's trial for conspiracy and murder began on Monday, April 2nd, 1984. So this was more than two years after Michelle was murdered. Doss was represented by Tulsa County Chief Public Defender Pete Silva Jr. And in this case, Kath, Doss did testify in his own defense. Under questioning by his attorney, Doss told the jury that he had heard his best friend, Jimmy Dean Stoller, threatened to kill Michelle and other people hundreds of times, but he never took the threat seriously. I don't take your threat seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason he didn't is he said his police officers, they're around all kinds of violence. So it was just natural. All of them would threaten to kill people all the time. That's what he said? Yeah. Oh, my God. Understandably, many of the same witnesses who testified at Ensminger's trial also testified at Doss's trial. Assistant Attorney General David Lee, who prosecuted the case, because remember, as Kathy said, this is not a state case. This was done by the Attorney General's office. In his closing argument, he asked the jury to consider who had the most to gain by Michelle's death. Did anyone else have a motive? Doss's attorney countered these statements by saying to the jury, you don't guess an individual into the penitentiary. I like that. Four days after trial began, the jury deliberated for a little more than five hours before reaching its verdict. Not guilty on both counts. Now, Kath, I want to point out something. When Doss testified that he had drawn a map for Stoller of Michelle's apartment, what he did is he said, look, I was so desperate during this custody fight. I wanted anybody to give me any ammunition against her. So when he gave Stoller a map of the apartment, he basically believed that Stoller was going to sort of collect evidence for the custody dispute. Like stalk her or tail her to find out what she was doing and what might be bad that he could give to his friend. Yeah, take photographs, whatever, subrosa stuff. And the jury believed that that was actually a realistic thing because Doss testified that he asked a bunch of his friends to collect any evidence could against her. So in April of 84, they find Doss not guilty. And in June of 84, now this is about five months after Jimmy Dean Stoller pleaded no contest to conspiracy. And on September 16th, 1985, more than three and a half years after Michelle Powers was murdered, Jimmy Dean Stoller's trial on first degree murder charges began. The district attorney concedes that Stoller has always contended that he was not the trigger man. He agreed to setting up the murder and all that kind of stuff. But he says providing the weapon, providing the weapon, the whole nine. But he was not the trigger man. However, he's charged with first degree murder for what you had said earlier. He was aiding and assisting in the murder, which led to the death with a criminal intent to kill. So, Kath, as you can imagine, many of the witnesses are the same for Jimmy Dean Stoller's trial. However, video was introduced at his trial that was not introduced at the other trials. So way back two years prior, in November of 1983, Stoller and Doss were both co-defendants in the conspiracy and murder case, and they were waiting with a court bailiff, who was a deputy sheriff, for an elevator to take them back to jail after a court appearance. A television reporter is there. So while cameras were rolling, the reporter asked Stoller if he thought a change of venue was in order. And Stoller replies, the truth is in order. So now the sheriff's deputy, who is escorting the two defendants, tells Stoller to stop speaking. And Stoller basically says, I could say what I want. So the reporter says, what's the truth? And Stoller replies, investigate it yourself. Isn't that what the news media is for? And the reporter says, who should we talk to? And Stoller says, anyone but Michelle's mother. Talk to people who actually knew Michelle. And the reporter says, are you saying she deserved it? Stoller says, I wouldn't have done it otherwise. 
So this video came in over Stoller's objections. After four days of trial on September 20th, 1985, it took a seven-woman, five-man jury fewer than two hours to reach a verdict. Guilty. So this is the first guilty verdict for Michelle Powers' murder. In three trials. Exactly. Two months later, Judge Donald Lane sentenced Stoller to the mandatory term of life in prison, and it would run consecutively with his 10-year term for conspiracy. Judge Lane determined that Stoller had a, quote, very aggravated, horrendous type of involvement, end quote, in Michelle Ray Powers' death. Two and a half years after Stoller's conviction, the Oklahoma State Court of Criminal Appeals upheld his conviction and affirmed the life sentence. Numerous subsequent appeals were unsuccessful. So fast forward to 2022, now 40 years after Michelle Ray Powers' murder. In March of 2022, the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board voted unanimously, a vote of four to zero, to recommend to the governor that Jimmy Dean Stoller be granted parole. The last time Stoller had been recommended for early release was 2013, but then Governor Mary Fallon denied it. Public records showed that current Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt signed off on Stoller's parole certificate on April 22, 2022, and it was to take effect one week later on April 29th. Kath, the blowback was immediate. Not only was the public aghast that he would do such a thing, but it became public that Michelle Powers' twin sister Rochelle and the Tulsa County District Attorney's Office only learned of Stoller's early release when contacted by the Tulsa World newspaper four days after the governor signed the certificate of release. Both of them obviously vehemently opposed any early release for Stoller. Just hours before Stoller was to be released from prison, Governor Stitt reversed his decision. Oops, my bad. (laughs) The governor's office cited material they received from the Tulsa County District Attorney's Office that they said was not previously available as the reason the governor changed his mind. Now, the assistant district attorney for Tulsa County said it was not actually new information that changed his mind because they just put together a letter from their office highlighting the details of the case. That led Governor Stitt to rescind his decision for parole, which the district attorney's office said they had never seen that happen in a case like this before. Even though Governor Stitt denied the release, Jimmy Dean Stoller will again be eligible for parole in early 2024. After learning of Stoller's parole being rescinded, Michelle's sister Rochelle said, I have peace right now and I won't have to worry about going to Tulsa and running into a killer. We're grateful the governor was willing to take a look and listen to the evidence. Thanks so much for listening, despite the fact that we both have colds and you could hear it in our voice, I'm sure. (laughs) Kathy's is deeper, mine is more nasal. (laughs) Who would have thought it could be more than it is? Right. (laughs) We also wanted to thank a listener who left us a five-star Apple review. Their handle is DMTC Wood. And they said, I love listening to Kathy and Kathy. They put Kathy's name first, so I'm a little offended. (laughs) But I know we'll fix that later, won't we? (laughs) This is by far my favorite podcast. It feels very natural and not rehearsed. Keep up the great work. Oh, so thank you. We appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. And if you haven't left a review, please do so. Please do so. As long as it's five stars. Exactly. (laughs) 
to all of our listeners, who we consider all of you friends. Exactly. Happy Hanukkah. And Merry Christmas. We fully expect you to overeat, overdrink, overindulge. <laughs> Just like us. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, you can find us on Instagram at Facebook at Killer Destinations. Tell a friend and thanks so much. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.